and I want to bring our attention to the Sermon on, on the Mount this morning with that in mind. Things are different. Things are a little bit different at the store. Things are different, perhaps, in the way we're engaging with each other. Things are different in terms of uh, the, some of the elderly that um, are quarantined away from us that we would rather have personal contact with. Things are different in terms of the danger levels when people get sick, or at least how we feel about that. There is, there is dynamics. There are dynamics that are different. There are political dimensions right now that feel very different to us, and the Sermon on the Mount is such a timely sermon for my own heart because Jesus' words here that I'm going to bring out talk about how to evangelize the world we live in. How do we reach our world? How do we reach this version of our world? Because it's a little different. Things are different. And I think just to be okay with that and to say maybe things aren't going to go exactly back to the way that they were is healthy. But what's the most healthy thing to do is go to scripture and say, one thing doesn't change, and that is the Lord, his word, and what Jesus says to us this morning in terms of how we're supposed to reach the world, how we're supposed to reach the world for Christ. Let me read verses 13 to 16 from the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Um, as a teenager, I grew up in Virginia. I grew up on the East Coast and um, was from Virginia Beach. And in that area, there was a particular Baptist church that was growing um, exponentially when I was there, growing in terms of people gathering. And we're in a different environment, but back then, growth and and, and it being measured by attendance was a big, big deal. I think some of that is being called into question right now um, in our culture. But, but it was growing and people were coming. And there was a mantra that we said regularly that we're called to reach men and women and boys and girls with the gospel of Christ. It's a pretty good um, theme and, and message to, to follow. But as I became a Christian at 17, I did begin to question a little bit of the methodologies of that church because it was very program-driven. It was inspiring people by the events of gathering together rather than just living the normal Christian life and being authentic and real. And I think our culture today especially is purging a lot of superficiality and calling us to be authentic and real. And what better... Um, category to think that through in it than evangelism, being salt and light in the world. What does it mean to be a Christian who lives this beatitude list, which, which is the prologue to the application of verses 13 to 16? We're supposed to, again, climb the ladder of the beatitudes. We're supposed to be poor in spirit. We search inside and we say, I can't do it. I can't live the life that I would rather live. I can't be righteous in my own strength. Can't do it. Wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death? So you have that soul searching. You say, I'm poor in spirit. 
Verse four, I mourn over my sin. I see the sin. I feel badly about it. I repent over that. I'm doing that. And then verse five, I'm meek. Um, I'm trying to live yielded to the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit's power, not too high and not too low, just living like Christ through all of my circumstances. And then I have this hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want something of holiness and I'm hungry for that. I'm merciful to others. I'm giving out of sympathy. I'm trying to be pure in heart, verse 8, through, um, through Christ and love holiness and then peacemaking. I'm willing to have hard conversations, to make things right, to talk about stuff I wouldn't otherwise want to talk about. But for the gospel's sake, I'm doing that and I'm a son of God in that. I'm, I'm affirmed as God's child by, by these things and by living the gospel. Okay, so... Being that, and these are called the beatitude attitudes by some people, it's living that, being that calls you into a mission work, and that's the mission field of being salt and light, and that's evangelism. What does it mean to evangelize? Is it being a door-to-door salesman with the gospel? Is it being trained to make that, you know, slip in that, that key segue where you can begin to talk about Christ? Well, not usually, not usually. I think Jesus is giving the very clear um, picture and word picture of what it looks like to reach people for Christ. You do it by being salt and you do it by being light. This is not... Uh, the call to um, isolation with the Beatitudes where you go away and you, you sort of are these meek and, and peace-loving and righteousness-loving person that's out on a mountain somewhere alone and you're always there. No, this is being salt and light, engaging the world with these Beatitude attitudes. It's not going to the monastery. It's bringing the Beatitudes public. I think that's what I titled the message, bringing the Beatitudes public, salt and light. It's, it's living the Christian life, the walk, not just the talk. It's people know how much you care, so they want to know how, how much you know. They want to know what's going on inside because you're living it out. These Beatitudes, as we've learned so far, can result in being persecuted. If you live righteously enough, it, it wakes people's consciences up and they get mad at you. They revile you. Verse 10, they persecute. Verse 11, they revile you. But then verse 13 and following says that if you live these Beatitudes, there's a positive effect, an equally positive effect, where some people will say, what makes you the way that you are? Why are you acting that way? Why do you love the things of God and you love people in a way that stands out? And I want to know, that's evangelism. That's reaching people for Christ. And so if you're taking notes, you can write these uh, points down first. Um, Number one, taking the Beatitudes public has two effects on the world, two effects. The first effect is you preserve the culture. You preserve the culture. You're salt. You're a preservation or preserving agent in our culture. Second, you'll promote God's glory, and we'll get to that in a minute. But you preserve the culture. And I want to break down what it looks like to preserve the culture by talking about salt. Just talking about this uh, metaphor, this picture. Salt would have been something that Jesus was familiar with um, from being raised in that time and place, uh, probably watching his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, rub salt on the meat. 
See, if you don't rub salt on meat back then, the meat goes bad. And refrigeration was not even something that this crowd would have imagined. Electricity hadn't been invented yet or discovered yet, and I should say. And so you rubbed salt on or into meat to keep it from rotting. The idea that we're salt in this world probably, um, I don't know, it probably gives a nod towards the fact, fact that our world is rotten. <laughs> it's sinful. It needs us. It need, we need to be rubbed into the culture. We do. And the first point I want to make about salt is that it is very, very potent. And I'm not a scientist or I didn't do even very well in science class. I guess I did okay. But salt is sodium chloride and it's two ions that are the two major components of salt and they can't be unbonded. This is, this is something that can't be broken apart. It's a very, very strong, strong um, component and element. And so salt... I you know, did a poor job describing it scientifically. I know it is very potent in terms of taste, right? All you need is a little salt on something, even at Thanksgiving, to either make it or break it. If you over-salt something, if you assault something, <laughs> you know, it, it tastes gross, right? If you put even too much salt on a McDonald's french fry, it's gone, right? The last french fry in the bed of salt, you put that in your mouth, it's not good, right? Unless you're really weird. But yeah, it's, it's not good. I went uh, surfing in Southern California uh, recently. Um, I went down there on a trip and I just, right as I got off the plane, a friend of mine took me immediately um, out into the waves to kind of debug, debug the brain. And then I was on, on a trip and, and doing my thing. But when you wipe out and you take intake a mouthful of Pacific Ocean water, you know it. It is distinct. It is potent. And the, the point I'm making is for Christ to call you salt, and that's what he called you, not just the church in terms of you know, trying to make a difference culturally in a corporate way, in the political scene, or in some sort of social justice movement. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about individual Christians. Now, we gather to get all equipped to do this, but individually, you are like a grain of salt out in the meat of your world, and you're making a difference. You are seasoning that moment. And I don't want you to underestimate the seasoning and the potency of your witness just by being a Christian at all. It's true. It's true. It's very, very positive and it's very, very potent. Salt is, is extremely noticeable no matter what. It's necessary. I, another science fact, just, just to kind of sidebar on salt is involved, it actually regulates the water content and fluid balance in the body. It's a necessary element. So it's potent in, and it, in, in that it is good for systemic use. But secondly, it's also a preservative. It's not only potent, it's preservative. I'm, I'm building off of the main point that we are a preservative in our culture. Lloyd-Jones, in his work on the Sermon on the Mount, said that uh, what happened in France with the French Revolution would have happened in England historically had the church not been as strong as it was with the English Reformation during that time period. The gospel makes a difference. We are stemming the tide of digression and degradation even within the culture of Anchorage. We are. 
We are just by gathering, we are salt. Just by scattering, we are salt in our culture. I think it's easy to underestimate the power of it, but it's very, very true. We're rubbed into the culture. We're called to be salty. We're called to live this Christian life. How powerful is salt? I read an article um, a while ago, and it was about how nuclear waste is, in particular, dumped into um, a particular area of New Mexico, Carlsbad, Carlsbad, New Mexico, or 26 miles outside of Carlsbad, New Mexico. In the desert, there are mine shafts that are a half mile deep into the ground, and they are they are caverns that are mined out and they are salt beds where the nuclear waste is dumped down into. And then the article said that the salt actually moves like a vicious plastic over the, like cold molasses over the waste and closes over it like a healing wound. Salt is very, very powerful, powerful enough to contain nuclear waste. Paul in Romans 1 said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. But at the same time, in Romans chapter 1, he goes on to talk about the digression of the culture. He talks about how people will basically suppress the truth by living in unrighteousness, though they knew something about God through his invisible attributes, where his glory is revealed and put on display through creation. They're suppressing it. They're saying, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. It's like they're sticking their fingers in their ears. They're going, I don't believe. And then the culture goes topsy-turvy, where natural desires get exchanged for unnatural desires. And people are, people are confused out there. But Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power. Where's the power? It's in the gospel. So Salt, be salt in a confused culture. It is confused. It's, that's becoming more clarified to us in our century that we're living in, right? In this world that we're living in. We live in the 21st century and we see it happening on display and we don't want to underestimate the power, the potency, and the preserving dynamic of salt, what it's doing. Every time you change the channel, every time you walk away from bad humor, bad company that corrupts good morals, every time that you say, Jesus is Lord. I was remembering uh, from just a long, long time ago where I worked a job that was landscaping during a summertime, and the landscaping um, you know, chief was a Christian, a strong Christian. He was a little bit of a kind of a a beach-like Christian, just kind of had everything out, you know, in the open, just like, hey, man, you know, I just love the Lord. And, And he said, he said that he went into the backyard on a back deck where an old friend of his light up, lit up a marijuana joint and said, here, take a toke. And he said, no, Jesus is Lord. Like, that's how he responded. I just remember being shocked by the way he responded. He didn't say, no, I don't prefer to do that. He said, Jesus is Lord. I'm satisfied in Christ. I'm good. And that was his smiling response. And it impacted me. I remembered it, you know, all these years. And it's what it means to be salt and light. You're not tearing people down. You're just saying, Jesus is enough. I love the Lord. I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. That's what it means to be a Christian witness. That's what it means to lead people to Christ. Being salty, not only it's potent, it's a preservative, it makes people thirsty. When you are genuinely a Christian, people go, I want that. You know, have you ever had salt in your mouth and you kind of do this noise right here, this, 
you know, something salty. And I want to eat now. I want to drink, right? And I, I want to slake my thirst. And that's what Christian witness is like, where we are the salt of not just Jerusalem, not just in Jesus' day. We're the, we're the salt of the whole earth. We're the salt of this whole planet. That's why we are here. I think of a parallel text, Mark 9.50, and it's going to talk about the warning even in Mark 9.50, and I'll pick that up in a minute. But just I'm banking on that word salt for a second. Mark 9.50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salt again? Now listen to this. He says, have, this is Jesus' words from Mark, have salt in yourselves. Have some salt on you. It's like having a salt packet, right? You know, you just pour it on the food. Yeah, have salt in yourselves. Be ready. Be at peace with one another. Be right with God. Be ready spiritually so you can be salty. If things are wrong in your life spiritually, you, it's hard to be someone who is going to cause thirst for God, right? It's that simple. Colossians 4, 3 through 6, Paul's in jail, prison epistle, and he's saying, pray for me. What is his prayer request? He says, pray also for us that God may open a door to us. I'm in jail. I'm in chains. But pray that God will open a door to us. What does that look like? A door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. He wasn't actually wanting to get out of prison necessarily. He was praying that a conversation would open up. Somehow, someone would come along, a guard, whoever. In the situation I'm in, just pray that the door would be open so that I would know how to speak. That's what he says, that I may make it clear, that I can make the scripture clear, which is also how I ought to speak. And so he's talking about the mystery, something people can't, they can't connect the dots. Who was Jesus? How does that connect to the Old Testament? That's what Paul's going. Let me make that clear and relevant. It's always relevant, but let me build the bridge and, and get the gospel across to people that you would open the word for that, open the door for the word. And then he talks about how he would say it. He says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Verse six. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So when you're gracious to people, it's seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's being salt. It's not just living, it's also speaking. But as you speak, it's how you speak, it's how you say it. I'm not good at this, but it's, it's thinking ahead before you say something and thinking how you're going to say it before you say it, the way you're going to say it. Paul's all about saying, pray for me, pray that I can say it the right way, that I can bridge the gap, that I can make it happen in the way that God would want me to do it. So it's salty. So it, it makes people go, man, I want truth. I want this Jesus. Woodrow Wilson told a story. He was the 28th president of being in a barbershop. He said, I was sitting in a barber chair when I became aware that a powerful personality had entered the room. A man had quietly come in upon the same errand as myself to have his hair cut in the next chair in the chair next to me. Every word the man uttered, though it was personal, um, not in the but not in the least didactic, showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done to me, I was aware I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. D. L. Moody was in that chair. I purposefully lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect 
that his visit had brought upon the barbershop. They talked in undertones. They did not know his name, but they knew something had elevated their thoughts. And I felt that I had left that place as I should have left a place of worship. Now that's D.L. Moody. But that, again, Jesus is saying you, second person plural. This is Beatitudes. These, you know, if you're like this, then you're living the Beatitude attitudes. Got it. Now, you, you know, blessed are the, those that fill in the blank. And now you are the salt. You are the light of the world. Again, Mary and Joseph uh, metaphors where baby Jesus is seeing um, Mary rub salt into the meat to preserve it. Or, you know, Joseph is lighting the kerosene, you know, the, the oil lamp, you know, where it's, where it's illuminating the room. These are the metaphors that Jesus is using to bring this home. And the warning is that you could be faking it. You could be faking it and faking yourself out. Salt can't lose its saltiness. But this is what he says here in verse 13. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's kind of a quizzical way to put it. He's basically warning you not to be a Pharisee. You know, you have the disciples that are around him. You have the the broader crowd. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He's up on the hillside and he's talking. There are undoubtedly Pharisees around. He's saying, listen, you know, if, if you're faking it, if you're not really seriously living for the Lord, but you're just putting on airs, then you move from being someone who is salt and potent and a preserving agent in the world to someone who is a fake who is basically trampled underfoot. You move from revolutionary to a footpath. Um, John Stott, uh, he called it being reduced to road dust. Reduced to road dust. Um, scientists say uh, salt scientifically can't lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride can't, is not an unstable compound that can be broken down. However, salt can be contaminated by mixing itself with other impurities. This could be what Jesus is talking about. In the Dead Sea, for instance, when salt and impurities are combined, um, they create a white powder that looks like salt but does not act or taste like it. It's reduced to road dust. Now, if you are salt, then you can't become unsalted. You can't become a non-Christian if God has made you a Christian. You're secure in that. You are salt. But it is a warning to examine your heart, just like Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10, that if you're exposed to light, you're exposed to Christ. And if you fake yourself out and say, I've believed, but you keep it superficial, then that's the warning that you don't want to be like the, um, the branch in John 15 that's discarded that's thrown away and burned in the fire. It says, again, it is no longer, verse 13, good for anything. This is Matthew 5, 13, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This is a severe warning not to be a hypocrite, right? Not to be faking yourself out, but to genuinely be salt. And right on the heels of this warning, I mean, right after verse 13 is another extraordinary affirmation. Just like 13, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. These are emphatic um, markers of who we are. You are salt. You are light. If you're not a hypocrite, you are salt. You are light. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's filling out here. You are those things. If 
If you are in doubt of your position, that you should repent, you should examine yourself, you should be drawn to Christ because your life by just being a Christian is having a potent impact just like the ingredient salt has on food in your mouth. That is what it means to be a Christian. And just as dramatic as being salt in a culture that's rotting is depicted, it's equally dramatic that if you're faking yourself out and you're not really a Christian, you're just going through the motions, then you need to be warned by this and say, I don't want to be road dust. I don't want to be on the sidelines here, on the outside looking in. I want to be active as a Christian in the world. Lord, make me salt and make me light. Well, not, we'll move from point one to point two. We're not only a preserving agent, you preserve the culture. Secondly, you promote God's glory. As a Christian, you are a light. Now, I was walking around in the dark this morning. One, because we're in Alaska and it's dark in the morning right now. Very dark. And um, have the dark shades in my room. And so while my family sleeps around me and I hear heavy breathing all around, I'm sneaking around. I don't do a good job when I'm rushing to get ready, but I'm sneaking around to, you know, to get my notes together, to get my final preparation, get my coffee going and all of that. And a lot of times I won't use light, right? I won't light up my phone. I won't, you know, put a flashlight on or turn a light on because I'm trying to keep people asleep to the best of my ability. I don't do well. I stumble into something. I'll hit my foot on the table or, you know, pull the door too quick, too, too, too fast. It'll be too loud. I mean, you know the routine, but that's all because I'm not using light because if you use a little bit of light in a dark room, it lights up a lot around you and you can see things and you know what's going on. We play a role in our culture as the luminary, as the light. Everybody is stumbling around in the darkness. They're, they're stubbing their toe in the culture. They're thinking wrong things. They're believing false ideologies. They're believing in worldly, satanic methodologies that are, you know, even Marxist socialism that's out there to say we can all be unified. We can all get along if we just follow this path and go this direction. That's darkness rather than light, the light of the gospel. We're in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian or Scythian, male or female. We're all co-equal heirs in Christ. Listen, Jesus figured all this out for us and it's in the Bible. Isn't that incredible? That's a little bit of a teaser for worshiping the round. I don't know what I'm going to say then, but we've got to talk about these things. Those are satanic ideologies, dark ideologies, dark truths versus the light of the gospel where we can come together, right? Where we can know each other as family, no matter where we come from. Ethnic background doesn't matter. It's beautiful in the gospel. It's what God designed for his glory. We're the light because we understand that. Because we have truth and we can live as Christ in this world. Speaking of that, and I'll just sub-point, we promote God's glory with two points. Jesus is the light of the world, first and foremost. He's the one that said he was the light, right? He's the light. Jesus at the Feast of Booths, he was still you know, in the progress of the Gospels. He was revealing himself more and more and more. And his half-brothers who were unbelievers at that point, later to become believers at the resurrection, were 
provoking Jesus to reveal himself at the Feast of Tabernacles, the big gathering, one of the big gatherings besides Passover, where it's a festival, a pilgrimage festival, where the Jews would re- return in the fall season, October season, to pray for rain. During this time in that sort of Southern Californian um, latitude line across our globe, you have Israel that is basically a desert unless it's irrigated. It's like Southern California. All the mountains down there are brown unless you have irrigation or rain. And then it turns Edenic and beautiful. And so they were praying in that desert-like climate for rain to come so their crops would grow. And so they had the Feast of Booths. A booth or a tabernacle in the context of the feast is just a lean-to lean to or a tent. And so everybody during that festival, all the the surrounding people in Jerusalem would camp out and pray for rain. And they would stare up at a 75 um, foot menorah candle that had different, um, you know, different globes at the top that little Hebrew boys would climb up little ladders and they would throw a torch into the, the, um, tar pitch and oil, and it would light up the city. You didn't have electricity. So in under the dark sky, this flickering light would flicker all over Jerusalem and it would be beautiful. It was the light um, representing the light of God that they would have remembered during the wandering of the wilderness time, the 40 years where God met them in a pillar of fire and and led and lighted the way towards the promised land. At the same time, he provided manna. You remember that miraculously? And he provided water, even through a rock, so that they could drink. And so with those truths and realities in mind, they were praying, God, please send rain. Please be the light. And so Jesus covertly didn't exactly obey his brothers, but he covertly went down to Passover later on and sort of under cloak of darkness or under disguise, I should say. And then he revealed himself and said, I am the living water. They had a sacrifice where the water was poured over the sacrifice first. And he said, I am the living water. If you drink for me, you know, you will have wellsprings of life within you. In other words, the Holy Spirit will, will come inside your life. And then later, the final day of the feast, the eighth day of the feast, actually, it was seven days long. This was the Octavia day, the eighth day, which is the cleanup. He's standing in the court of women, which means he was out in the public with everybody. And he's standing with his back probably to the menorah candles that were just about smoldering wicks at that point and, and burning out. And he's saying, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, the reason I gave you all of that background is to say all of the significance of Christ fulfilling that picture that he is the light of the world is to say that now that Jesus is in heaven and we're down here, you are the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. He's handed the baton to you and me. We are the light of the world. This is not something we just sing in Sunday school, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. No, we are the light of the world. We are, we are the, the torchlight in the midst of a dark place. And I think we need to own that and even see that in Scripture. Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness. I love the way Paul says that. At one time, not that you were in darkness, you were darkness. In our sins, we were darkened in our understanding. We couldn't understand right from wrong. And we were pervading darkness. Bad company corrupts good morals. We were darkness. 
But he says, but now you are light in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. You are proxy light for Jesus. We are the light of the world. Walk as children of light. Philippians 2.15. He says that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish, blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're the lights. We're the luminaries. We're not perfect, but we're light. Jesus goes on in his sermon here to say, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I've seen the New York skyline. I've seen it up close from the East Coast. We see that a lot. You can see it from space, right? I mean, when, some, when a city is lighted up, even an astronaut from space or a satellite photo can see where people are based on the lights that are illuminating from the city. You can't cover that up. You can't put a, a lead dome over that and hide that. It's Jesus is saying, listen, you are light. It's happening. If you are salt, if you are that potent taste in the culture, you're not faker. You're not a faker. You're really a Christian. Then you are salty. You're preserving. You're potent. You're powerful. And you're also light. You're light. You stand out. We stand out just by living the Beatitudes Just by being a Christian, you are, by necessity, bright. I think we get so guilty that we're not evangelizing enough. We're not doing enough cold call evangelism. We're not making the phone call. We're not reaching out. We're not bridging the gap, having the conversation happen. Well, I would submit to you, Jesus is saying, live the gospel and don't underestimate the power of living the gospel by your attitude, by your actions, by how you reconcile things in your family, by how you reconcile things with your friends, by how you speak of truth, by how you aren't afraid in a culture that is fear-induced, right? Just by being brave, that's evangelism. By speaking truth to one another, that's evangelism. And certainly there are times to break it down with someone and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You wait for those opportunities as you live the gospel. You are a city on a hill. You're very bright, very bright. You know, it's interesting. He goes on to even emphasize the brightness by saying something that would be ridiculous. He says, verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The point there isn't that we would be tempted to hide our faith. The point is that if you are alive spiritually, it's not hidden. It's not hidden. If you light a lamp in a house, it is for the purpose of lighting the house. Embracing your purpose, embracing who you are, it shows that it would be ridiculous to put it under a basket. The whole purpose of being a Christian is to be in the public and to bring Christ public. It gives light to all the house. So what does this look like? Look at verse 16. 
Verse 16, this is application. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. In the same way, just like a a lamp is lighting up the whole house, in the same way, let your light shine before others. What does that look like? Well, it looks like doing good works. Now, good works here is an interesting... um, kind of thing to open up in the original language good here is instead of it being agathos which just means to do something good like an act of kindness which is important uh jesus uses the word paul or matthew who's writing jesus's um sermon down here uses the word kalon instead of agathos which just is a generic word for good kalon is the word for beautiful doing beautiful works Now, Martin Luther, who was always fighting against a works-based salvation, um, said, look, the works that are beautiful, that give glory to God, are the spirit empowered. He basically categorized them to spiritual works within the church, spiritual works that are empowered by the Holy Spirit in particular, like teaching, a teaching ministry, a gift of teaching, a gift of giving, a gift of discernment, a gift of wisdom, a gift of mercy. This is just who you are in the body of Christ. That's putting God on display because the spirit is empowering you to do it. I think that's true, but I I would expand it and say that we have spiritual works that don't just happen, not only happen within the church, but happen out there where we give the gospel, where we do something, where we're serving people who are unbelievers and we're doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit, where people sense an aroma of Christ on you as you leave food for them or minister to their need, as you do good things for people, as you see a need and you meet that need to the glory of God, it becomes beautiful to people and people will say, that's not normal. That's not natural. There's something different about that act of kindness that made it beautiful and powerful. Again, it creates taste in people's taste buds to go, I want to learn more about what makes that person tick, why that person would do that in a spontaneous way, in a powerful way. It's not duty-driven works. It's not obligatory. It's just out of the overflow of that person's life. It's when your conscience rings this week and you say, I think you ought to do that. Guess what? Probably you should. Pray about it. Give it to God. Diffuse it of any kind of works-based righteousness, right? Lay the beatitudes over that and say, I want to do this for God's glory, to make peace, to act in mercy and sympathy, to do it in love and kindness. I want to do it for righteousness sake, not my own glory. Lord, just take away any of me in this and then do it as an offering to the Lord for somebody and watch what God does. That's evangelism. That changes people's lives. You know, during seminary, uh, I, and I think I've shared this before, but it was a, just a powerful memory that was brought back to mind. And uh, during seminary, I taught swimming. And when I was just recently in Southern California, I saw the pool that I learned how to teach swimming in. And I joined this little group. And for two summers, I did that. And I not only taught swimming to children in that particular pool, but out at their particular pools in their backyards um, through this system. And um, 
I remember I went to one house where it was a really kind of snobby, um, you know, high-end, high-wealth um, home with the waterfall pool and different things that were going on. But the kids there, and I didn't want to be uncharitable first hour. I don't know that I captured it well there. I don't know that I will here, but the kids were spoiled. They were very spoiled, rotten kids. And I had to teach them how to swim, and they would scream and fit on the side of the pool and not want to get in the water, and you're kind of you know, wanting them to come in. And this one girl that I was teaching how to swim, you would kind of have them like this, and she was a younger little kid, and, and she would vomit. She would throw up to get out of her lesson. And I'm so stubborn. I'm as stubborn as the little child, right? I don't care. I just chlorine's there, and we just keep going. Maybe they can swim on their own for a little bit, and then back we go. I mean... But I, you know, taught swimming and enjoyed it. Um, that sounded a little bit morbid, but, um, but I, I, I had fun. But part of it turned into evangelism. I, I got to know a family, um, and several of them this way, but one that was a Buddhist family. And it was so Asian family, and um, it, was a ma- uh, it was a little boy and a little girl that were a little bit older, like eight, nine-year-olds. And then the mom in particular would come and watch the kids and would watch me teach them how to swim. And then it turned into more refining strokes and some different things. And, and I had a little bit of rapport with the kids. And I told them that I was going on a missions trip to New Zealand with the college and, and was going to go there for six weeks. And, and, but I wasn't pushing the gospel. I wasn't pushing the fact that I was a Christian or studying for ministry. I was just enjoying the relationships and, and, and doing my thing. But at the end of that, and I, I don't remember if it was two summers worth with them or not. It's all a blur. But at the end of it, they actually invited me. The mom said, why don't you come over for dinner? My husband and I would like to have you for dinner. After you get back from your missions trip, so you can tell us all about New Zealand. So I said, okay, fine. So I showed up as a single young man, probably 22 years old or something, and went there. Maybe I was a little bit older, but went there and... And they pelted me with all kinds of questions about New Zealand. Then it was suddenly, there was a shift where theological questions began to be floated out into the discussion. Like, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, and I'm going, okay, I'm 23 years old or whatever. And a little bit out of my depth, and I'm going, okay, let's learn about the life of Joseph right now. And I talked about Joseph and how he was abandoned by his brothers and and God worked it all together for the good. In Genesis 50, 20, when he's confronting his brothers and restoring with them, he says, what God, um, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about this outcome. And, and it brought glory to God. And so the parents said, great. Thank you for your time. Kids, we're going to dismiss you upstairs. And you're going to watch the video that's set up for you in the room. So all of this was coordinated. And then they really leveled their gaze at me. And they said, now we have some more sensitive and deeper questions to ask you. And again, I'm just a swim teacher, right? But, but I was there and they, they began to confess sins in their marriage and how the husband had been unfaithful to the wife and they began to weep and they were saying, what do we do? And I just related it somehow back to Genesis 50, 20 and God working it out and how God can restore. And I just gave the gospel. And I don't remember what I said, frankly, at this point, but Sometime later, probably months later after the summer, I was at an ice cream shop and, and the husband was there. We just were standing next to each other in line. And he said, listen, Jeff, I want to tell you, um, we became Christians and we're part of a church and thank you. So that was pretty cool. Then I got Christmas cards from them and, and they stayed together and stayed in the faith. And then I saw them 
sometimes a couple summers later, just at a pool and talk to him. And again, a growing, solid family in the Lord. Now, I didn't do anything by that. I just was teaching swimming. I was just doing my thing, right? And you're just living your life, working your job, being a Christian, enjoying relationships. I wasn't in my mind even praying for them as Buddhists for them to become Christians. That just wasn't even entering my mind. You just live as Christ and you'll be salty. You just live as Christ. You just live these Beatitudes out and you'll be light. That's living the unhypocritical life. It's living the genuine, authentic, Christian gospel life. And God does the work. He changes the lives around us. Let me give you a few take-home points just that you can maybe write down. They'll be online on our website um, later this week. Um, First of all, living the Beatitudes is living the gospel. So that's what it means to live as Christ, just living these attitudes spiritually. And under that, you never live your Christian life in your own power. The Spirit enables you to live the Christian life. He does it through you. Number two, be careful not to underestimate the influence you have as a believer on others. God designed you as a Christian. I wrote these down a long time ago when I preached this a long time ago. I just want you to hear this. I just think it's so true. He designed you to be influential. He remade you to be influential. New creature, new, new creature in Christ. You're supposed to be. And you are just by who you are. In the personality that God made you to be, with the gift mix that he made you to be, in the sphere of influence that you live in, he made you influential. You're an influencer for God. And God designed your world to be influenced. He's designed it. Just like how those parents said, you know, kids, go upstairs. There's a video prepared. I mean, God prepares details and circumstances that are tailor-made for you to be the influence that you are. And number three, you don't have to be a bold personality to be a bold influence. You don't. You don't have to be a speaker. You don't have to be bold. You can be shy, and you can still be an influence. Speak little and live large often, and do spirit-motivated, spirit-empowered, mundane, yet beautiful works. And then watch people respond in faith.